Hello, and welcome to ECE Tech Talks. I'm Barry Sullivan, ACETA Program Development Director, and with me is John Janowick, ACETA Executive Director. Hi, Barry. And today, we're very happy to have uh, Fred Harris with us for uh, today's conversation. Uh, Fred, well, Fred has quite uh, an extensive background uh, in uh, digital signal processing, in uh, software uh, defined radio, a lot of other uh, topical areas. But um, uh, when we were chatting just a little bit ago, I told Fred that uh, I'd like to use a certain citation. Uh, this is from the 2006 Software Defined Radio Forums Industry Achievement Award uh, that uh, was given to Fred. And I'd like to use their uh, citation to introduce him. And the citation goes like this. We recognize Fred Harris for his pioneering contributions to digital signal processing, algorithmic design and implementation, and his visionary service to the signal processing community. Uh, and I think that probably summarizes as best as uh, I could in one sentence, uh, what uh, Fred has meant to our ECE community. Uh, Fred, uh, happy to have you with us. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. Uh, well, and you, the other Larry. thing, the other thing I noticed about this citation, uh, your name, which is uh, part of the citation, is in all lowercase letters. <laughs> uh, and uh, <laughs> there's a little story behind that, I think. Uh, yes, there is. Uh, years and years ago, between my master's and my PhD uh, school activity, I thought I'd like to know what I'm worth out in, in the public arena. So I decided to fill out some job applications. And one of the questions I ask myself is why would someone remember my application in presence of all the other applications? I said, I'll give them a reason. I'll sign my name in lowercase letters. If E.E. E. Cummings could do it as a poet, I certainly can do it as an engineer. And it works. People will bump into me and say, you're the guy with lowercase letters. One of my graduate students was once doing a paper where he presented it on the stage. And he said "If I to himself, if I put lowercase letters on the title, they'll say I spelled his name wrong. So he put uppercase letters on the title. And everyone in the audience, when they saw the title, said, hey, you spelled his name wrong. <laughs> well, that, 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 that's a great way to distinguish yourself. Uh, but I, I think you've done a lot more distinguishing work just besides, besides the way you write your name. Yes, I'd like to think so. Yeah. Well, you know, Fred, when, when we were uh, chatting a couple of weeks ago, you're getting ready for this, uh, you did share some of those stories. and. Uh, um, I was wondering if, if you just have a, a favorite one. You know, we were talking uh, a few minutes ago about um, a conversation we had yesterday with Marty Cooper, and uh, you were relating some of the, the ways that uh, you've interacted with Marty and, um, you know, your connection to, uh, you know, his invention of the cell phone. Oh, okay. Well, I when I started do, building digital radios, I came to the realization, well, it happened. I took a leave of absence a number of years ago. I went to work for Hughes Aircraft. One of the presidents of Hughes invited me up. And I remember driving to LA thinking, there's no problem interesting enough to get me to go to Los Angeles. And he said, it's a black project. I can't tell you what it is, but I promise if you get read right into it, you'll be a kid in the candy store. And on the basis of that promise, I took a leave of absence and went to work for Hughes. He worked out it was the B-2 bomber. 
Wow. We did all the avionics on the B-2 bomb. It was wonderful. I was a kid in the candy store. When I left and went back to school, and they were surprised I left because I was giving back three quarters of the money I was earning to take a lower paid job at school. And when I went back to school, they were amazed I came back because I gave up all that money. But what I realized is everything I did on the B-2 bomber, I could build into civilian products. I could build a digital television set. I could build a digital radio. And we started doing that. And it changed the way we build uh, communication systems now. In fact, I remember once I had a student looking for a thesis project. I said, let's build a digital TV. Now, we don't have the hardware that'll do real-time TV, but we can capture an analog TV signal, put it in memory, and then process it and bring it up on your computer screen. And we did, and it was amazed. People were amazed you could do that. And at one time, a TV set was a big box of electronics. Right. When we started building digital TV, it became a little chip, about three quarters of an inch on the side, and no space in there. Nothing else occupied all that space. So we did it for fun. And because we did it for fun, we could be very creative. We didn't have to meet a, a schedule, but we had to meet our own requirements that let's make sure it's fun and let's do something no one else has done. And we had fun doing it. And in fact, we had the distinction in San Diego of building the first all DSP-based satellite modem and the first all DSP-based cable TV modems. So all the early work has my name on it somewhere. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, yeah, I, I love hearing you inject the word fun uh, into all this. Um, you know, in, in engineering education, uh, and, and John, I'm, I'm sure you, you've been hearing this as, as I have over the last, uh, oh gosh, it's been um, quite a few years. You know, how, how do we sort of uh, get students to feel that fun, feel that excitement? Um, I, I remember what my engineering education was like, and, and frankly, it hadn't changed a whole lot uh, as, as I saw my son, you know, going through his education. Uh, but the idea of, you know, we, we need to get students earlier on in uh, their education, you know, hands-on, learning the fun. Um, you know, Radio Shack just doesn't exist anymore. How do, how right. do we uh, introduce the, the the fun element when everything is um, you know is 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 largely invisible to so much of what we do. Well, one of the advice that I give to students who are seeking advice about their uh, career development and their education in engineering, I always say, if you're not having fun, you may not be doing it right. I start with that, and then when I'm teaching material and I tell the students how clever this is, I say, and I invite you to play. Take this system we just described and turn the knobs. See what happens if you change the loop bandwidth. See what happens if you have a different rate of change of frequency at the input signal. Play with it. Play is the most important part of what you could be doing. And along the same lines, I get, try to get them engaged. And I tell the story about, I, it was a famous PhD uh, physicist in Brooklyn, New York in the late 50s who got a Nobel Prize and when interviewed about why and what was responsible that brought him to the spot where he got his Nobel Prize, 
He said, I, I blame it on my mother. I give her the responsibility. And the question is, what did your mother do that got you a Nobel Prize? He said, all my friends would come home from school and the teacher and their mother would ask, did you learn anything interesting in school today? See, my mother never did that. He said, my mother always asked, did you ask good questions today at school? <laughs> mm -hmm. And I tell the students, good questions are more important than the right answer. The, I can get a machine to give me the right answer, but I can't get the machine to ask a good question. And my fortune in working both in the industry and in academia and in the government in various places is I'm surrounded by people who ask good questions. I, I love that story. I credit my mom with uh, you know, sort of pointing me in that direction, too. Uh, she used to save stuff like old radios, toasters, whatever. These were things for Barry to take apart. Um, but they always were things. They were, they were old, and they were beyond their useful life because Barry was not good at putting things back together again. That's right. The putting it back together wasn't as important as satisfying your curiosity. What's yeah. in there? Right, right. Uh, one other thing I advise my students when they seek career advice, I always ask, are you the smartest person in your group of people with whom you work? And if they say yes, I say it's time to go. You have to work around people smarter than you because you want that smart to rub off on you. And what happened is you're helping all your other people become smarter, but you're not. And your job satisfaction isn't as important is more important than the amount of money you make. Once you earn a certain amount of money, extra dollars won't give you the same satisfaction of extra satisfaction in the work you do. Learning new things is important. All the time we're in the learning mode. And I point out, as engineers, we have dedicated ourselves to spending our life in school. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, so Fred, I, I was looking at some of the some of the material you provided in advance, and you've got a driveway story, which is oh. which is which, is, which uh, you know I, I found fascinating. Maybe okay. share that with everyone. When I first left on my undergraduate school, I moved from New York to California because that was the furthest you could go from New York. <laughs> Not that I wanted to go far from New York, but I wanted to spread my wings, yeah, and experience what the world looked like. Sure. And I got to work for a company called Aerojet General, and Aerojet General was building things to take us to the moon and things like that. And in fact, the group I worked with was building the lunar asset module, the thing which took off from the moon and that met the the satellite around the Earth for the trip back to uh, back to the Earth, right around the moon. So I would go to Tullahoma, Tennessee, about once a month. And we would fire the lunar ascent, accent uh, engine in a giant vacuum chamber in Arnold Engineering Research Center. And the reason it's in Tennessee is they can hold a vacuum against a rocket engine in their facility. Okay. So they had, they had 50 5,000 horsepower pumps running during the time we fired. And the, only the TVA could supply the electricity to run it, but they couldn't supply it to both Tennessee and Arnold. So we only ran jobs at night. Okay. Well, one of the times that we were there at the firing, the the there's an expansion nozzle on the uh, on the rocket which was titanium, very light, which didn't have to be cooled for the takeoff. And during the firing, 
the titanium uh, expansion nozzle or expansion, uh, uh, what do they call it, around, uh, separated from the engine. Okay. And about five minutes after the firing, I got a call from my boss in Sacramento. He said, how'd the firing go? I said, we lost the engine. It went down the tubes. He said, well, all right, I have to see what the engine looks like. Bring it home. Tell the chief engineer at the firing station, <laughs> clean up the engine, put it in a box, and you're going to take it home. So I did. They took it off the box, took it off the engine mount, put it in a box. And then I went into Nashville, rented a truck, went back and picked up the engine, drove the truck all the way to Nashville, put it on an airplane. Oh, my God. I, I paid 90 cents a pound excess luggage to get it on the airplane. <laughs> That's not shipping today. <laughs> I, I got it back to San Francisco. Right. Like, there was no plane that was big enough to carry it to Sacramento. So I rented another truck and drove it. Oh, my God. In the meantime, my boss is thinking, Fred can't bring that home. It's an Apollo engine. So he sends people whose job it is to carry engines around the world. There's no engine. There's no paperwork. I put it on the truck and drove out, and I didn't (laughs) sign anything. (laughs) So now there's a question. Someone stole an Apollo engine. Who's got this Apollo engine? Well, I had it on my driveway waiting for the next day at work where I could bring it into the job. And I was telling my neighbors, I've got to be the only guy on the block with an Apollo engine in the driveway. <laughs> Maybe the only person in the world with an yeah. Apollo engine on his driveway. Sorry. <laughs> so that was fun. And what I learned is when people ask you to do something, you have to ask them, do you really mean it? Do you want me to do that? Yeah. Because I'm going to do it. Right. Right. Well, Fred, uh, something else that you shared, uh, um, you spent some time in Princeton. Uh, where I spent some time as well. And uh, um, you have some memories of working at the Institute for Defense Analysis? I do. It was it was a place that only has one customer, and it's a three-letter agency. And I get invited because I do things that are of interest to that group. But a more interesting part is a number of years earlier, I had a an amazingly good student, a guy named Michael Orchard, who now teaches at Rice who, when he got his master's degree from me, decided he wanted to go to MIT and asked me to write a letter of recommendation. He said, the acceptance rate is so low, I'm going to apply for five schools. And they were MIT, Princeton, Stanford, UCLA, and Berkeley. And I wrote five letters of recommendation. And each of the letters said, this is the most amazing student I ever had. If you had a room full of outliers, he would be the outlier in that room. And I said, and he, on top of him being brilliant, he's a very nice man. You won't believe it until you meet him. And I sent out all five letters, and every one of the letters was successful. All five schools offered him a full scholarship and accepted him for the PhD program. Well, then he had a problem. What do I do? I have to, which school do I pick? So he took off and visited all five schools. And when he came back from the trip, I asked him, well, which school did you pick? And he said, I'm going to go to Princeton. So that brought, that's what brought it up. And I said, why did you pick Princeton? And there's a lesson to be learned in his answer. He said, every school that I went to, at, went to talk to the faculty member who's in my area of interest, asking, do you have time to talk to me? And every one of them said, no, I'm busy right now. Come back later. At Princeton, P. Ed Lou said, let's go get a cup of coffee. That let's go get a cup of coffee took the most brilliant student I ever had and put him in Princeton. 
when a student knocks on my door and said, do you have time to talk to me? Let's go get a cup of coffee. That's what the student deserves. There, we are, we are supplying a service to them and you have to su supply it properly. Not as an annoyance that, oh, I'll stop what I'm doing to do your thing. Do it because that's your job. Right. Right. I think right. I, I mentioned to you before yeah. that, uh, you know, B.D. Lou was also my advisor at Princeton. Oh, oh and, okay. uh, and, and I did get to meet Mike Orchard. Oh, uh, okay. And I, and, and, I, and I totally agree with everything you said about both B.D. and uh, Mike. Uh, yes. In fact, uh, uh, B.D. was uh, largely the reason I ended up at Princeton as well. Uh, okay. So uh, that, that's a great story. Uh, yeah. And when I when Mike Orchard found out I was leaving San Diego State to go to UCSD after 50 years of teaching, he called me and said, you're leaving San Diego State is a more important effect on that university than the coach who's head of the basketball team who has just retired from San Diego State. And I thought that was the nicest compliment he could have given me. <laughs> In fact, I once I got I got Mike his first two jobs when he was between graduate school and and working out in the real world. So we would get to see each other occasionally. And one day we had dinner in north of San Diego in a little restaurant along the ocean. And I said, let's walk along the ocean at sunset and see if we can see the green flash. <laughs> and he said, what's the green flash? So I described what it was. Right. And he and I walked along the ocean and saw the green flash. The first time he ever looked at it, he found he found it. Now, what is the odds of that happening? <laughs> okay, now now you're gonna have to I think tell our audience about the green flash because I'm not sure everybody oh. would be uh, familiar with that. Okay, when the sun is low in the sky uh, over the ocean, there's significant refraction of the sunlight, and that's why the sun looks red at night because the other colors are being refracted away and. Only red gets through the low, low part of the Earth's atmosphere if it's heavily burdened with water vapor. And just as its sun touches the very edge of the ocean as it sinks down, the remnants of the color that's left suddenly becomes green. It's just a flash. And it's at the very top as if it had a little red, a little green hat on it. It appears and disappears as the sun disappears. It's worth looking it up, the green flash. Well, if I'm ever down in San Diego, I'll watch for the green flash. Well, you, I've looked at it for years and years. I never <laughs> saw it. And Mike and I got to work, work, walk together and see it. That's a great story. Yeah. Okay. John, it looks like you're about to say something. No, I... I <laughs> I, I, I wanted to thank Fred for sharing all of his insights and, and quite honestly, you know, Fred, uh, on behalf of all the um, almost 300 members of the uh, Electrical and Computer Engineering Department Heads Association, who this podcast is really directed towards and their students, you know, we, we, uh, we can't thank you enough for, for being here today and, and, and giving us a little bit of your history and, and, uh, and, and obviously, the, the rich uh, work you've done in technology. And, and on behalf of everyone, I want to thank you for all your hard work. The, I'd like the, to have one little closing comment about advice sure. to a teacher. That would be great. Never tell a student what you're teaching them is hard. 
if you tell them it's hard, they're going to believe it. And already you're at, the, you're at behind the eight ball. What you want to tell them is this is stuff you learned in grade school. Now, I tell them that in jest. But everything that we learn here, they already know I'm just polishing it and repackaging it so that they have some confidence. You're right. I did know these things, and I just didn't see it from your perspective. And I have a sign on the outside of my door that says, through this door enters the nest expert DSP signal processing people. And I let them know we are a special group of people. We contribute to the wealth and welfare and betterment of humanity. What else could you do better than that? And it's fun. And it's fun. fun. (laughs) That's right. Okay. Okay. Well, I think that's a a perfect note uh, to end our conversation. Okay. Um, I want to thank you, Fred. I want to thank everyone in our audience for taking some time to to join us today with uh, Fred Harris. Um, And uh, we'll be sure to join us next time. Okay. uh, For another captivating conversation with a leader in ECE. 